What I learned very quickly was that I didn't know how to work. I had a good work ethic, but I didn't know how to get things done. I didn't know how to collaborate. So I was constantly questioning why certain things had to happen in the way that they did and felt slightly cross as well that, particularly from, from my experience in architecture anyway, that buildings kind of form followed finance rather than necessarily good quality places to live. Really, having one eye on the future is living in the present because it, it always arrives before you know it. Hello, I'm Paul Miller and this is Digital Workplace Impact, where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices and people impacting the new digital worlds where we work. What does digital mean for governments and citizens? The truth is the state is always in a difficult position. Caricatured as detached, wasteful and bureaucratic, it's loved by some, feared by many and potentially misunderstood by us all. Our relationship with the state has always been complex and with the digital frontier beckoning, we worry that it can only become more so. Today, I go on the campaign trail with two super smart people, Sarah Gold, Design Director at IF, and one of the drivers behind the UK's incredible digital innovation programme, GDS, the Government Digital Service, and also by Tom Cheeserite, Applied Futurist at Book of the Future. Both Sarah and Tom offer visions of the power of hyper-local parliaments, the possibilities of a true sharing economy and the surprising immediacy of the future. So I'm delighted to welcome everybody to Digital Workplace Impact um, with myself, Paul Miller. And the theme for the episode today is what does digital mean for governments and citizens um, and it's really about looking at the way that the interaction between citizens and the governments that they are within have changed as technology has changed and we're going to be looking at what does this mean for us as as individuals societies and and also what is it going to mean in the future are we just going to get better services or is there a shift to a citizen empowerment um and i'm delighted to be joined on the show today by sarah gold sarah is a designer involved with interaction data networks in the public domain and she's a founder of the design studio if um sarah uh, came to my attention because she gave an exceptional talk at the uk parliament as part of their exploring digital series and she covers subjects that we'll probably touch on like techno politics privacy and and civics and she was also involved with uh, an organisation called the Government Digital Service in the UK, otherwise known as GDS, and, and another activity called Dot Everyone. And it's great to have you on the show, Sarah. Thank you. And I'm also delighted to be joined by Tom Cheeserite. Uh, Tom is a founder of Applied Futurism Practice, um, uh, 
author of Book of the Future and creator of the Futurists Toolkit and has had some fascinating uh, steps in his career and is uh, one of the well-known thinkers around what the future uh, holds for us. Um, but Sarah, I'd really love to start with you. And before we get into the the kind of meat of the relationship between citizens and governments, can you just um, answer a, a question that I love to I love to start the podcast with, which is, uh, what did you expect when you came into the to the work to the world of work? What did you think work was going to be like? So I've worked from a really young age um so i think i entered the workplace probably when i was still at home earning pocket money to clean various bits of the house <laughs> so that taught me quite early on that a lot of the time work can involve quite mundane tasks and uh, might mean that you it means you have to give up a, a lot of, uh, of of free time so i think uh when i first entered the workplace um for a, a placement following my architecture um, career, I guess I expected a, lo a lot of those things. Um, I think from my first experience in architecture, I felt um, slightly disillusioned with the practice because of the economic uh, kind of model to which we have to build our homes um, and that that really guided a lot of, of architecture and the way that you can uh, design spaces. Um, so from then on, really, I began questioning why certain systems have to work in the way that they do. Um, and that kind of inquisitiveness led me on to try out a couple of other roles before I then um, called myself a designer. So I guess what I expected of work was to kind of, you know, uh, do do a service and get paid for it. And that happened. What I didn't expect was for me to feel quite so sort of frustrated with um, what I was doing and um, the lack of impact I felt it was having, which then led me on to um, the path, I guess, that I've, I've chosen now. So, so that's interesting. So your work experience was really one of, of feeling that things didn't work the way that you felt they should I, yeah, I think so. Um, that that there were certain frameworks in place from essentially like the industrial revolution, really, that didn't seem to apply so much now, um, particularly in a world where we have the internet. Um, so I was constantly questioning why certain things had to happen in the way that they did and felt um, slightly cross as well that particularly from from my experience in architecture anyway, that buildings kind of form followed finance rather than necessarily good quality places to live. Um, an interesting example of that is, say, if hospitals were built for health, we'd probably have far fewer of them and they'd look very different. Um, and that kind of inquisitiveness and just questioning the status quo, I think, led me into uh, design as a practice. Um, where I felt I could have a greater impact on thinking about what the question should really be that we're asking rather than necessarily um, kind of designing mm -hmm. solutions or finding solutions. I, I was 
trying to um, uh, kind of delve into what you do and 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 your own uh, and your own story and and the areas that you've been involved in and and so on. But perhaps you could just explain. Um, I mean, how do you describe what you do in your work at the moment with IF? So I probably, I'd certainly change how I describe what I do depending on my audience. So sometimes I say um, I, I'm a designer and um, I build websites, which is as far as a conversation can go. Um, alternatively, it might be that I'm a designer and I work within cybersecurity. Um, but for the nature of this podcast, I'll try and go into a little bit more detail. Um, I, I am a designer and I work within the areas of privacy, security and data. Um, my mission at IF really is to make those things far more positive, empowering and active for people. Uh, at the moment, particularly uh, security tends to get set within deep within the settings of an application or somewhere where you know, we certainly can't find it. Um, and it's very hard for users to be um, engaged or empowered by privacy settings. I think there's a huge design challenge around making privacy and security far more usable for people. And this really matters because so much of our moments of our lives are becoming digitalized. There's more data than ever before. And there's more data being exchanged than ever before too between different services or products so it's really important that we are in control of that information know what's happening with it why certain decisions are being made and that's where um, some of my work as in privacy and security as a designer comes in um, so far those issues have really been prioritized to technologists or policy makers which means that often um, those issues don't engage with people um so i see those issues through the lens of of people prioritizing existing kind of things that people need now but also their emerging needs too um it's certainly a new area of design there's not very many of us doing this um but i think it's going to be a growing area and we'll see more and more people enter it which is only going to be a good thing. So, Tom, can I just um, ask you the same question that I asked Sarah earlier? Um, um, and that is really uh, when you started to uh, come into the world of work, what, what did you expect from work and what did you think work was going to be like? <laughs> yeah, like Sarah, I was working from a, a relatively young age. I did all sorts of jobs as I went through university. So you'd think I, I knew what to expect when I took my first graduate job and yet somehow I walked in there on day one thinking I knew everything uh, and that after 16 years of education um, I was now going to be teaching everybody else stuff uh, which couldn't have been further from the truth. I, I think what I learned very quickly was that I didn't know how to work. I, I had a good work ethic but I didn't know how to get things done. I didn't know how to collaborate and somehow I hadn't picked these things up which are, which are really different I think in in a um, in a professional office job than, you know, being a delivery driver or what, you know, being a chef. It's a very different skill set. And so I think it probably took me about, uh, probably took me two years, my, my bosses at the time may say longer, to really get my head around all of those you know, skills of real work, if you like. Okay, and that's in interesting. And, and, and one of the things that was, uh, that struck me when I was looking through your um, biography, 
uh, Tom, is that it said under your keynotes, there's the future of money, uh, the future office, Mm. the future of language, uh, applied futurism. And that made me think, why is it you're so attached or what is it about the future that means you just completely love thinking about the future? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know whether it was my mum going to see Star Wars when I was in the womb or um, the the yeah, early exposure to, to science fiction, which was you know, the sort of the dominant genre when I was young. But I've always been obsessed with, I guess it's really the appliance of science. It, it's about what we can be as, as a race, what we can be as human beings by leveraging what, what no other species on this planet has, which is this ability to... Uh, to use our brain power and the elements around us to to build tools that improve us and improve our lot in life. And so, yeah, I don't think I would have put it quite so sophisticatedly back then when I was reading the original Usborne book of the future after which my business is named. Back then it was about robots and lasers and things that I found fascinating. Um, But now, you know, there's a a level of political engagement in it. There's a level of... uh, desire i guess for us to be what we can be and you know, in a lot of ways science seems the route to that possibility for me yeah because i was thinking about this yesterday because i on a completely different le- level i was listening to a wonderful little radio uh program which was between leonard cohen the uh singer um uh, songwriter poet and and marianne famous for the song So Long Marianne, um, which I, I hope you know. Um, but um, it, And she recently died. But what really struck me in the interview with Leonard Cohen was that he said that he had absolutely no interest in the past, uh, no interest in the future, and that he was kind of pretty permanently in the present, which which kind of got me thinking: is is there something about the future that that takes us out of present experience? I know this is nothing kind of directly to do with the government's relationship with its citizens, but it's an interesting thing when you you know when you when you're somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about the future. I, I don't know. I think yeah. If you spend too much time in the in the present, you kind of—it's uh, a very nice idea, and I think you know all sorts of gurus will tell you to live in the present and uh, you know make maximize the experience of everything around you. But in a in a government or a, or a business context, particularly in the world we're in now, where it feels like, and certainly you can make pretty good data based arguments for us being in an accelerated world, the pace of change increasing. Really, having one eye on the future is living in the present because it it always arrives before you know it. And the number of organisations and people and companies we've seen in the last few months and years who've been completely wrong-footed by things happening that perhaps they thought were on the far horizon were 10, 20 years out, but really were only 10 or 20 months away, um, has, has been staggering. And so I think, you know, Living in the future now is really not, you know, it's perhaps not thinking about the 20, 30 years. It's not robots and laser beams, albeit those are realities of modern life now. It's very much more what's on the near horizon that presents me with great opportunity, or if I don't address that opportunity, is going to take me out at the knees. 
So yeah, that, that's fascinating. And and just as as I asked Sarah before, uh, Tom, could you just describe your work with applied futurism and and and, um, and how do you describe your work to people? So our role is applied futurists is really to help people answer three questions. You know, the, the first is what does the future look like for us? And as I say, that's that's generally a nearer term future. We do explore the the twenty thirty year time frame as well but most of our work is often in the five-year window where i think people have a real blind spot the second question is about once you've done that view of the future people need to communicate it to their stakeholders their colleagues and their customers you know their partners their investors and so we often help organizations to communicate a clearer view of the future so they can bring other people with them on a journey of change and the third thing we do is, is where it gets really um, sort of into the nitty gritty is about helping people respond to that vision. And that comes in two parts. Sometimes it's about a, you know, an immediate strategy. Something's happened and we need to build a response. But quite often it's about how do we build an organization that is more future ready? You know, an organization that is going to be responsive to this accelerating pace of change and, and capable of adapting as the needs arise and whether it's you know sometimes our work is writing things for people sometimes it's giving conference talks or holding workshops for companies sometimes it's you know six nine months of in-depth consultancy but across all of those different media if you like fundamentally we're always trying to answer those three questions you're listening to digital workplace impact with me paul miller where I investigate and explore the ideas, practices and people impacting the new digital worlds where we work. Today I'm in conversation with Sarah Gold, Design Director at IF, and Tom Cheeswright, Applied Futurist at Book of the Future. We ponder what digital means for governments and citizens, with visions of the power of hyper-local parliaments and the possibilities of a true sharing economy. To listen to previous episodes go to digitalworkplacegroup.com slash dwimpact and links to the show notes can also be found there. And Sarah, just um, coming back just coming back to you again, uh, I, and could you just tell me, uh, I mean, the government digital service, GDS, sort of came to my attention probably about three years ago and I heard about the things that they were uh, doing and planning to do. Um, could you just tell... Um, people who are listening who aren't familiar with GDS and and what they've done a little bit about that and also what your role in the UK's government digital service has been. A government digital service is part of the cabinet office. Um, Their job really is digital digital transformation of government. Um, So that means they collaborate with a whole host of different government departments to help them um, kind of with their transformation, really. That means building platforms, um, building digital services or kind of redesigning um, existing services for the digital age, um, creating standards. And it means what they have done, which has been so, um, has changed so much of uh, how services run are that they have prioritized services with by starting with user needs rather than um, government needs and that's been a really uh, key change in their in their approach um, they 
run gov.uk, which is a website that I'm sure um, many of your listeners will have used or know about. Um, so my um, role within GDS was I was working as a service designer in the registers team uh, with a super smart um, bunch of um, brilliant technologists, including a chap called Paul Downey. And we were reimagining the way that government hold government and citizen data um, thinking about the creation of registers, uh, which was based on um, work from uh, Google, um, looking at a certificate of transparency, but ultimately is looking at canonical sources of information across government. And and do you think that um, we're seeing a a change in the way that services are delivered to citizens? And it's really just a, if you like, a kind of process change in the way that you can apply for a driving license or file your tax returns, etc. Or, or is there some more fundamental shift um, of of power, if you like, to citizens happening? Or, or is that something that might happen? I think that the kind of emerging um, kind of pattern that you've just spoken about, about um, um, like a power shift to citizen is beginning to happen. Uh, so when you look at, um, I'm trying to think of the URL, but I think it's petitions.gov.uk. Um, so the UK um, petitions service has been designed to make it much, much easier, um, more easy for citizens to create a petition. And there are also uh, different kind of links and um, like use cases for that, which are really empowering for people and shift um, power back to people by making that a much easier um, thing to do by making uh, writing and writing a petition and sharing it much, much easier. Um, that has shifted power back into the hands of citizens. So I think there is lots of that emerging, um, but also that there's just a lot of work to be done within government um, in this kind of archaeology kind of approach to service design, which is looking at services that were designed a very long time ago to very old legislation and thinking about how they can be made much simpler and faster now. So there's also um, a lot of work happening that's not necessarily involved in the place of putting power in the hands of citizens, but it's much more about prioritising user needs and as I say, making services simpler and faster. So a bit of both, really. Mm. And and Tom, I mean, do you think that the the shift in digital services is is a is is simply a kind of process positive for us? It makes life easier, et cetera, et cetera. Or is it or is it part of? I mean, what's your take on this? Is it is it part of some different orientation? Of, of where power is located in a society? I think most of the effects so far have been on the level of friction, the interaction between citizen and government. I think there is a clear ambition in some of the steps that have been taken, like data.gov.uk, to do that greater empowering and, and do that shift of power. But primarily, it is it has been about the reduction in friction. You know, I'm a big believer that there isn't actually anything wrong with 
representative democracy. The problem is, is that we've just become too disconnected from the people wielding power on our behalf. And so, you know, what, what I'd really like to see is we, as we use these digital tools is not necessarily a shift in power, but an increase in connection between those acting on our behalf. And actually, I think the petitions are quite an interesting way to do that. You know, it's not a referendum. It's not a, a piece of direct democracy, but it is a way to demonstrate, you know, the, the, the strength of feeling and, and depth of feeling about particular issues and perhaps, yeah, hold some sway over those representing it. No, that's really interesting because I think one of the things that I've been thinking about is is um, just the overall impact of the the Uber model. And, and obviously a lot of people are trying to work out what does this mean. But one of the things that... that strikes me about it and it sort of leads into what you're saying is that it's not so much that power shifts from 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 government in a representative democracy to, to citizens but that you get more transparency you get more visibility you get more of a direct channel of as you say with petitions to 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 influence or express your opinion i mean one of the things that i noticed Going back a few years, um, there was a vote in the UK Parliament um, that the members of Parliament were taking, which was all around um, action in Libya and whether there would be action taken to intervene in Libya. And basically because of the um, impact that, const uh, that, that people in constituencies were having on their, their members of Parliament, that influenced them to vote in specific ways. So it was still the members of parliament taking the, the making the votes, but the, the outcome of it changed because of that. And I thought that was quite a significant, uh, a significant moment. Um, Sarah, what does this sort of bring up in your mind? I think that the, when we look at um, disintermediation, um, with services like Uber or Airbnb, I think actually there's far more that's kind of closed and obfuscated than made clearer or more transparent. Um, that there's within those services, particularly for Uber, for instance, um, the way that drivers get paid or are employed or what their uh, rights are, are um, really not obvious to anyone who's a, a, a Uber user, someone who takes those taxis. Um, so that there are, whilst it's made the convenience of knowing how much a journey will cost in advance, whilst that has changed, and certainly the way that trust shifts um, in the design of that service, I think that it's actually... Um, <laughs> It create, it's created new problems rather than necessarily kind of empowering individuals or making a service uh, more transparent. For me, sorry, if I jump in there, those, you know, both of those services, Uber and Airbnb, they're not really disintermediating. They are intermediating. And yeah. you know, while they, have, they you know, absolutely have lots of negatives, as we've seen with their battles with governments around the world and unpopularity in places, what they have done very well is become effectively a discovery engine for unused resource, whether it's you know you know space in cars that are owned or um, if it is space in houses that are owned. 
and potentially you're getting much more efficient resource use as a result of that discovery engine. And I think that's that is a a kind of an overlooked positive sometimes in the face of perhaps some negatives of these services. And I agree they are they're not very transparent. But I think they do present perhaps that discovery piece presents perhaps an interesting picture for government, particularly, you know, post austerity, which is not just happening here in the UK, but in a lot of places where governments may be shedding services, governments may be shedding assets and resources. And perhaps there is a, a role in that post austerity landscape for better discovery engines of the alternatives to those previously government managed um, services. It, not necessarily ideal, but one possibility of the way things may go. I think there's, um, like, just going on from that, I think that there are, um, yeah, certainly looking at um, where services could be useful for underused resources from a government point of view is interesting. I think from looking at, um, from the other side, from the Uber and Airbnbs or even TaskRabbit, I think um, what I find most shocking is where markets are beginning to enter where they in parts of our lives where they perhaps um, mm. shouldn't <laughs> um particularly with groups like TaskRabbit. so um whilst there's like a drive for efficiency i think as well we can't forget this question that like michael sandell brings up so well um which is where should markets not enter but that's an aside to the main uh, <laughs> the the main question here hmm no, it's it's interesting. I mean, is is there so? I mean, people often think of um, Uber and Airbnb as as disintermediating. That there, there is a certain level of of removal of things in between. But but you're you're saying it's actually really just about the the utilization of of unused resources and on, on a particular platform. But what are the what are the what are the applications? Do you think of the um, the sharing economy? into public institutions, um, governments, um, charities, and so on. Um, is, is it, is it, are they aside from the sharing economy or is it something that um, is going to, or is it impacting them already? I think you know, sharing, sharing economy is an interesting term. You know, I think these are, uh, I think for all of the, the, Sharing is a very positive word, and I think necessarily yeah, these aren't necessarily sharing services. I, yeah, I, I say I'd call them really discoveries and brokerage services. I think there is a role for a sharing economy um, in the public services, and it particularly comes in what is perhaps the biggest challenge that we face over the next uh, twenty, thirty years, which is the potential for uh, massive. Um, redundancy job losses as a result of, of automation and artificial intelligence and you know the if that happens and i think there's an increasingly strong case that it will we will be looking for new ways to engage people in effectively the social contract and new ways to support those people that need supporting and some sort of true sharing economy model which all sounds a bit David Cameron's big society, the way I'm describing it. But, you know, there is, there's going to have to be some sort of alternative social and, and um, social service model that may fit that description of a sharing economy where effectively we are sharing resources between citizens much more effectively, perhaps enabled um, by some government-led service. I think if you look at 
um, what's happening with libraries or what could happen with libraries that they are a key kind of public institution involved in um, a little bit of the sharing economy. But I completely agree with you, Tom, in terms of the term. <laughs> and also the sharing economy is actually um, a bit of a hoax. But if you look at services um, like the Library of Things, it's just recently opened in West Norwood, which is a, a service that provides um, things like um, sewing machines or um, drills uh, to the community. You can borrow them for a certain time, bring them back, hence their name, the Library of Things. Um, there are some new emerging kind of local services, I think, that do um, take into account this kind of underused resource idea that Tom brought up earlier that um, I wish we'd, I hope we'll see more of. Um, I think they're really good. And I've already seen two commercial startups, if not three, pitching for venture capital to replicate that library of things model on a commercial basis. <laughs> mm. it's, it's, it's interesting because I spent a lot of my time working with um, large corporate organisations and looking at how they create more engaging, more productive digital worlds of work for them. And, and increasingly in the last few years, I've had more contact with governments and parliaments and and NGOs and one of the things that it's very it's very hard in a way to keep your own personal politics uh, I, I've noticed sort of separate from what these organizations are doing um, uh, do you find that in in your work because you've got you know we've we've each got our own political preferences and so on and and when you're trying to kind of, if you like, support institutions that affect public policy, it, it's hard to sort of remain kind of impartial in a way. No, it's fine. I'm right. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, seriously, uh, uh, most of my engagements with government tend to be uh, set in a macro context over which the people I'm working with maybe don't have an awful lot of influence. And so we are trying to respond to rather than set the environment we're dealing with. So if that is, you know, I've done a lot of work with local government over the last few years and dealing with austerity, you know, you're, you're trying to find the best solution in a bad situation rather than being the, the person you're know, dealing with that situation. I don't think anyone on either side of the fence would deny it. You know, or most wouldn't deny it. It's, it's a bad situation when you're having to choose between, you know, social workers or, or childcare. Um, but it's um yeah uh, you're right you know you can't you can't keep your your personal politics completely out of it and i think what you've always got to do is is look for evidence uh, and genuine evidence not the sort of you know evidence we all cherry pick to support our own personal preferences but where's the real evidence if you can base decisions based on really solid data and say this is the right way to do things objectively great and when it comes down to issues where it's personal preference and opinion you, you have to be open to debate hmm. i mean and, and, and it, i suppose it's it sort of feels to me that um this level of kind of digital innovation that we're that we're living living through this this kind of digital renaissance um i suppose we don't know um what this will open up in terms of um, opportunities in in the way that we organise and, and govern our societies. I mean, one thing that I I heard the other day on on a podcast that I was listening to, and it sort of kind of blew my mind a little bit. 
Um, Peter Diamandis, who's sort of best known for the X Prize and the Singularity University, um, was talking about um, whether we, through Elon Musk, would actually form a, a kind of presence on Mars at some point. He was also talking about... Um, what's going to happen with virtual worlds and whether in each of these different environments we could sort of experiment with with different and, and, and hopefully better forms of government. It's almost like if you were starting from scratch, what would you build in in terms of, of, of rights, uh, responsibilities, sustainability, etc. I can I can sort of think of the things that you know would come to mind for me, and and I suppose that just sort of um, uh, really kind of took me back as an idea. Um, I don't know if that um, uh, sounds like an attractive or, or, or disturbing idea to either of you. I think it. I think <laughs> it's a mixture. Uh, I think. As, so long as those decisions were made in a very equal way, then um, maybe we would get to a better idea. But so far, um, particularly for me, I'm still um, in rooms uh, full of lots of men. So um, <laughs> uh, so long as we got some more equality, then maybe. But I think there's what's interesting from a point of view, of, particularly of digital, is that government can operate without necessarily the need for national borders. and that's something that I find really fascinating um, and how um, this idea as well of kind of citizenship as um, perhaps also like the state as a service, which maybe has kind of negative connotations, but it's also something I've been thinking about too. For me, it's about, it's about choice and diversity in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, there's, there's something really interesting happening in Syria right now. I went to the launch of a book a few months back about what's going on in Syria at the moment. And in effectively, the places where the, the war has been through and they've managed to re-establish levels of local government and local services and open up schools and things again, what you're getting is almost hyper-local democracies which look very different to each other. You know, somewhere there is a real... Um, degree of uh, religious commitment and you know close adherence to rules and others where you're getting you know not quite matriarchies but you know largely female dominated local parliaments running cities you're getting much more liberal places and much more conservative places you know standards of dress are being becoming totally diverse and i think you know we've 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 got to accept that there's going to be i think in the future a much um, perhaps much smaller entities. We, we, we have hyper-concentrated power uh, in the centre in the UK. And actually, as that power starts to be redistributed out away from the centre, we may get some variations in, in rules and behaviour. And we can all, you know, we should be agreeing on a, a set of universal standards. But beyond that, we might see some variation. And with variation on Mars, I think it's likely to be in the early days a pretty libertarian state. but. Um, but, you know, perhaps that's OK for the, for the wealthy who can make it to Mars. Well, yeah, that's the interesting thing. I think there's a, there's a promise of digital that hints to a world where it's not just the richest 1% who have like, the freedom to choose between um, the kind of competing regulatory frameworks, but actually all of us. But of course, when you start talking about Mars, 
uh, you immediately think, okay, well, it is only going to be the one percent that will be able to make <laughs> will make be able to make that move. Yeah, though, though I think if you then equate it into a um, without getting too sci-fi and 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 uh, and kind of losing the attention of everybody who's listening, um, you know, if you equate it to the 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 physical exploration that happened, you know, centuries ago on on this planet. Um, uh, you know, if that if the next stage is, as somebody like Elon Musk would say, that we become a a spacefaring uh, species, then then um, I guess over time um, things do um, become available to people. I mean, you know, uh, the other kind of fascinating fact, obviously, is that we're going to go from I think we're at about three billion people connected at the moment on Earth. You know, to everybody whether it's through facebook drones or balloons whatever etc cetera, etc cetera. and and that those individuals in some of the poorest and least accessible places are going to come online with a decent amount of of bandwidth and um that sort of re- relates to something that i was reading about which was um entrepreneurial activity happening in in the uh, most uh, isolated and de- deprived parts of of france in 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 the ghettos the level of entrepreneurial activity is is at a level that's not been seen before and so there's the and i think that's what happens when people who are disenfranchised start to get connected and and what happens i think is is something that's that that we've probably not seen before um so that's that's a kind of very hopeful um part of it i think um for me um i i think the uh, uh um uh the, the the point about trying to design things that w- works well and what you've said tom about this idea that um we would have certain universal services available but then this hyper level of 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 localization um is is really i suppose we can see it happening at certain levels on a kind of political level with devolution and so on and and it's quite a it would make the world not a kind of bland uniform but but perhaps even more diverse uh, for me it's about speed of response you know the the you know, i think i said earlier there's nothing wrong with with the the ideals or the the fundamentals of of, of representative democracy but what we have is is rather slow and we live in a very fast world and i think if you if you shrink the size down and bring the power closer to the people who are experiencing the services and you know and, and effectively the, the 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 you know citizens really are you know if you bring power closer to the citizens and closer to their bring the closer to their experience of that power you can a respond much more quickly and perhaps b target and design those responses much more accurately and um, a much more citizen-centric design approach rather than this rather distant approach which seems to have been in evidence in the in the recent past behind digital workplace impact is the digital workplace group a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than a hundred leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise. However, I am CEO and founder of the Digital Workplace Group, so just a little biased in recommending DWG. 
If you want to find the show notes for today's episode, go to digitalworkplacegroup.com slash dwimpact. So one of the things that, that kind of um, struck me the other day was there was a, a news story about the fact that the um, vehicle licensing in the UK, which had a, a, a sort of celebrated move from f- uh, physical badges that people put in their windscreens to the whole thing happening electronically. And it was done to save cost. And yes, it did save um, about 10 million um, sterling, um, but it actually depleted the revenue for people actually buying the license, the light, the tax discs every year by a few hundred million. And that's because you lost the physicality of the reminder uh, in your windscreen. And I just wondered whether there's a that's a little bit of a kind of wake up for us on 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 when you the digital uh, change might seem an obvious thing to do, but we don't necessarily think through what it's going to be at an experiential level for people and how their behaviour might change. Uh, So I wasn't immediately um, aware about this, but I think it uh, kind of makes sense that when you don't have something that would usually have, like, reminded you that a renewal is due due or um, that something needs to happen, that you forget about it because that usual reminder is not there anymore. Um, I think, and sometimes in services where that's deliberately put in place, we'd call that a like a dark pattern. So an example of that is with your mobile phone bills, for instance. They are often, um, we are encouraged to go paperless to save paper, um, but often to access like your bill, you have to log into a portal online through a username and password that many of us probably don't remember. Um, and it means that you never really know what your mobile phone bills are Um, and often you don't know what they are until the you know amount has actually left your bank account so that's a sort of pattern like a dark pattern where the information isn't surfaced for us up front Um, whereas for the DVLA um, tax discs it feels something that is certainly more accidental Um, but thinking about the way that you are notified is something that's really important um, within digital services and thinking about ways that that can happen beyond the kind of pop-up notifications we're so used to in our phones and get so frustrated by um, with various you know things going off in our pockets or reminders on our screens so ways that we can um make sure that people know uh, exactly what should happen next and when to renew things when there aren't those paper reminders anymore feels like a, uh, a a good design challenge it also feels quite simply like something that um part of a loop of that service that wasn't quite finished up i'm not sure um any more of the details than that but it f- it certainly feels like something that's far more accidental um as a result of that change happening that's true um so um, thank you both very much. I've got a, a concluding question for, for each of you um, and maybe start with you first, uh, Tom. So um, what what makes, we, we talked about what you expected when you came into work, but, but what makes for a perfect work day for you? You know, when everything's just gone absolutely brilliantly, what, what's, what's, what a, what's a perfect work day look like for you? Uh, yeah, the, the, the... Semi-facetious answer would be 
uh, getting early. Um, I'm an early riser, so I'm normally in at seven, if not slightly before. Uh, four really productive hours of writing, um, you know, putting out a report or blog post or whatever else it may be, followed by a very nice lunch and a nap. I'm a devotee of the nap. Um, and then four hours listening, because um, that's you know, literally my job is half putting out and half taking in. Um, listening, reading, uh, consuming information. Um, it, it obviously is never like that. And the reality is what makes the perfect day for me is a day that was nothing like the day before. Because um, I could be just about anywhere doing just about anything on a weekly basis. Mm. Okay, that's great. And and for you, Sarah? Uh, the perfect uh, day of work would probably be a day when I could get home on time. Um <laughs> But that rarely happens. But no, I think a, a really the good stuff that I really enjoy is uh, being able to help solve a kind of knotty problem um, amongst a brilliant team of people. So collaborating on a on a problem, probably in a sort of a workshop or just design sprint kind of um, scenario, thinking through a hard problem, prototyping in code, and getting something working that we think is quite convincing, and um, that we can then go and test with people say the next day that's always something that I really enjoy doing so having quite a productive day with other people is something that I um, enjoy very much and luckily enough um, happens like reasonably regularly amongst the other um, things we I have to do good well thank you both very much for those answers and, and and thank you very much for for all of your contributions today it's been fascinating to to hear some of the insights around this evolving relationship between us all as 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 citizens and the institutions and and governments that we're um kind of part of i guess um so i really want to thank you um sarah gold uh founder of the design studio if and thank you very much for your for your contributions uh sarah and to tom cheeseright and thank you very much to you tom uh, founder of applied futurism practice and author of the book of the future and many other things so um thank you both of you and um been great to have you on the show thanks very much thank you thank you You've been listening to Digital Workplace Impact with me, Paul Miller, investigating and exploring the ideas, practices and people impacting the new digital worlds where we work. This was a Digital Workplace Group production and this is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time.